A part of each of us, our essence, is timeless, has never been harmed, and carries a dream it is waiting for us to bring into the world. These are words from my guest today, Langston Khan, whose new book, Deep Liberation, brings together the shamanic wisdom of ancient spirituality with the needs and demands of modern-day life. He wants to help us transform the emotional patterns that hold us back from healing. Langston is a queer Black teacher and shamanic practitioner who specializes in radical human transformation. We began our conversation in the usual way, with me asking how his heart is. But for all the wonder of technology in the 21st century, we experienced some digital interference. So we jump right into the meat of our conversation, which explores grief, his journey towards shamanic healing, connecting with our felt sense, our individual purpose as contribution to the fabric of the universe, and using our voice in service of our vision. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Langston Khan. I really resonate with this idea that you lose something and you discover what it is you a, you a really wanted in the first place if it wasn't necessarily thing that you lost and about how grief can actually grief contains within it so much information right if you're if you're able to decipher it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and i think that deciphering isn't usually like a function of analysis or the mind necessarily but more that that real willingness to be in the grief and give yourself enough of a container to let it empty you out and let it really move through you. And then I think in that emptiness that gets left behind, there's this way that we can come in contact with, um, in, in my shamanic community, we sometimes call this like the, the raw bone of your longing rubbing up against the ache of your destiny, that, that <laughs> feeling of like, what you truly desire, not the cravings of our culture or you know addictive responses, but just this this real longing of your soul rubbing up against like what hasn't happened yet, the parts of you that haven't yet had opportunities to be experienced in manifestation in your life. And I think grief is such a good tool to like clear out all the clutter that keeps us from being in relationship from that part of us. And so how are you? advising spiritually helping people navigate what has been a tremendously difficult year for so many particularly queer black people right we've are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 um the the virus is able to take advantage of long-standing inequalities and disparities in HIV care and, and health care and it really runs the gamut and so how what what are you saying to to queer black people this year about, about grief and, and what they can do with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I think when we share, you know, multiple identities that are marginalized in cultures of, you know, patriarchy and white supremacy, um, it can feel like unfair to be told, like, you know, navigate towards heartbreak, feel your grief. It's like, you know, I have enough grief. I don't want to feel it. Like I've spent much of my life grieving, you know? Um, but I also feel that those of us with, with, especially those of us who are like, you know, queer and black, there's a lot of ways that we're asked to just put on a good face and kind of keep going with the flow and that we learn, I think many of us learn to survive by, I don't know if the word is quite denying our emotions, but, um, avoiding getting sort of like this fear that if we were to really allow ourselves to feel all of our grief, we would drown in it. So it's this way we can learn to um, just sort of more focus, I think, either on caretaking roles, like, you know, focusing on others' emotions and sort of martyring ourselves at the expense of others, um, especially when it comes to, you know, wanting to tend and care for our community and family, but then also the, the other side of that can be moving into kind of addictive responses of 
of avoiding really feeling that heartbreak or really feeling what our heart is truly longing for through moving into those sort of repetitive things that keep us cycling around what we actually want, but like are just maybe just close enough to it. Um, so that's been a lot of my, the ways I've been, you know, working with, with queer, queer Black folks is helping them move out of those patterns, including myself in this really difficult year. And then, and moving into the sort of healing capacity that is behind both of those impulses. And when I say healing capacity, I don't just mean like, you know, healing others, but this coming into relationship with this energy of healer, this sort of what you might call an archetypal energy that is that wisdom of how to be in the present moment, how to be, how to pull ourselves out of the stories of the past and out of the fears about the future in the present where it is unknown, where there's infinite potential and yeah, versus and, trying and to protect ourselves with the, with the, with those fears or those stories. I'm, you know, there was a, a pang of recognition or rather a spark of recognition when you, when you're, you know, speaking about the addictive behaviors, because I've been relying heavily on wine recently and so many people I know are as well. Like it feels so normal to do that. And it feels so normal to, or not even normal. It feels fair <laughs> to, to want to numb oneself to what's happening in the world. And so this kind of encounter with ourselves, as you said, for fear of dr drowning in our grief, um, this opening up of our hearts and tending to this grief, it feels like a Herculean feat. Mm -hmm. I yeah. opened your book and I started reading it. I was like, oh shit. You know, like <laughs> I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna have to confront some stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say it's not necessarily something that gets easier, opening that door of grief. Like I wouldn't say that for me, even after you know all my years of different various, you know, following the path of my own healing, it's not that I'm like, oh yeah, grief, whatever. Like it's, it's never a fun thing necessarily to open that door. But once you've moved through that doorway enough, that kind of threshold of the grief, I find I've, I, I recognize how I feel on the other side of being willing to move through that door. And that's enough to motivate me to want to create those spaces, to feel those feelings, because I know that when I'm not allowing myself space for that, all of my life experience starts to numb out. I think that's part of the addictive experience too. It's like, you know, the, just the, the joys aren't as joyful as well. Um, it's not like we can just, uh, I, like I think of emotions, these elemental forces that are constantly, you know, rising up in us, coming into expression, being felt and releasing the next one rising up. And when we choose one emotion that we're not going to feel, whether it be grief or anger, or jealousy, whatever it is, we decide like, oh, that emotion's bad or negative. So I'm not going to feel that one. That whole cycle starts to get disrupted and everything starts to get more numb, I find. Or it starts to build up and only come out in explosive ways that aren't necessarily about the current present experience we're in, but more um, those that built up baggage from the past. Wow. I've never thought about it like that, 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 we, that we're trying to numb, silence, or ignore one negative emotion and in turn do it to all of them. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And I guess that how I think about it, I don't think that there's negative emotions. I think there's emotions that are maybe more uncomfortable to feel, particularly because of how we're socialized in this culture. Like not all cultures are as bad at grief as we are, you know, and, and not all cultures make you do grief alone. Like one of the things that I do is, is as part of my communities is I lead grief rituals. Also, it's one of the ways I'm like, you know, supporting and tending. And there's a real beauty to the container that opens up when you're coming together to move through that emotion. It feels less Herculean, like you said. There's a truth to that. There's a truth to that feeling that this is too much for me to do alone. And so when you can create a container together to move into that portal of grief and just have that time set aside for that and also not be calling just any other humans to help with that, but also, you know, spirit or that your ancestors, you know, the, that wider container of the, the more than human world real magic happens. There's a, there's a greater ease that comes and there's less of that feeling of I'm going to drown in this because you feel all that's there holding you as well. What drew you to shamanism? 
Mm, so, you know, I feel like the more you walk on a path like Toronto's, the more it feels like everything was drawing you there, you know, when you look <laughs> back. But um, when I was very little, I was one of those weird kids who was, um, you know, talking to invisible people all the time. My parents would be like, who are you talking to? I'm like, a lady. She says hi, you know, <laughs> just give them these messages and stuff. And thankfully, my parents didn't totally like, you know, squelch that out of me. My dad's a, a Buddhist priest and a psychotherapist. And my mom is a, um, you know, pretty gifted healer in her own right. And so, but even so, even with really accepting, caring parents, just the world and, you know, contemporary culture of, you know, scientific materialism really um, caused me to lose that part of myself, that capacity as I got older. And then I found myself after college just in a real health crisis. You know, I had chronic illnesses and was finding myself in the um, hospital frequently. I had a lot of mental and emotional issues that were arising for me. And I knew something needed to change that I needed to actually focus on, you know, caring for myself in that way. And so I, at the time I was working in the film industry and I sort of left, I stopped the, the jobs that I was doing and just got like a really basic data entry job. Um, I sh that sounds like a lot more of a choice than it was at the time. It was more of like, okay, this is the job I can get right now that's not in film with the skills I have, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, so, but it also gave me that time to actually be focusing on my healing work. Whereas before I was working like, you know, 72 hour days on film sets and stuff like that. And what happened is as I began really answering that call, um, two things were happening. One, I was doing a lot of ritual work in, in a spiritual tradition, like, you know, meeting on a monthly, you know, to do some psychic development work and also um, doing just pretty formal ritual work. And then on the other side of that, I was working with something called interrelationship focusing, really, which really helps you to give you tools to talk to the felt sense in your body and track energies to the root in your body and begin to engage with them there and, and come into relationship with them with compassion. So I started to bridge this gap that I'd felt most of my life, I think especially as a black queer person, between my inner emotional experience and my ability to express it externally. I felt like there was always this gap there because I had learned to you know, put on masks and hide a lot. And so the more I started pursuing both of those paths, that sort of intense ritual work and the deep inner emotional work, I feel like my helping search like, oh, he's starting to pay attention to life. He's starting to wake up. Like, let's go get him. You know? And so I had these series of initiatory dreams where these helping searches be coming into my life. And what they're really showing me at the time was all that was wrong with me. Like I thought like they would show up with things that were wrong with them, like being covered in parasites or something. But what I began to learn as I interacted and engaged with them, they were happy to tell me, you know, make fun of me about was that I was the one that was covered in those parasites. I was the one that had these like deep energetic imbalances and they were just trying to show me through embodying that in how they showed up in my dreams. So at first it was scary, you know, to see these oh. like, <laughs> these weird distorted you know helping spirits but then over time that led me to pursue shamanic healing and what the shaman saw that was one of my you know who was one of my primary teachers today as well um was this fundamental lack of boundaries and not just a lack of boundaries but these structures I had created instead of having healthy boundaries to survive. As I was working with those boundaries and, and working to form um, healthier boundaries, what happened was it was like kind of like a boot camp with the spirit world, like just having to do a lot of these tasks and, and learn to interpret the symbolic language of my helping spirits so I could receive the messages they were trying to give me and learn to really cultivate that new ability to be in relationship with these healthy boundaries. But what was it about shamanism versus other forms of healing practices and traditions? Yeah, thank you. That, that's a good question. So with shamanism, 
you know, my whole life, I would, I was always interested in like, why am I so sad? You know, why, why do I feel like things are fundamentally flawed in my culture? Why do I see like the friends that I think are the most like sensitive and creative people that I know are the ones that are in the most pain? Um, I felt like something was deeply wrong and upside down. And I didn't see any parents in our life really having the answers. You know, that I was very lucky to have a father who like, you know, was a therapist. So he could give that kind of support. But even psychology didn't really seem to be answering these deeper questions I had about my own emotional experience and also the larger systemic patterns I saw in the world. And, you know, I was reading lots of different frameworks and philosophies and exploring some indigenous traditions, but where I first really saw answers to these questions was in contemporary, a contemporary shamanic tradition that was really looking at, and, and some you know, indigenous writers as well that were talking about the abandonment of thresholds of initiation in our culture, the abandonment of tending birth, the abandonment of tending initiation into adulthood, the abandonment of tending elderhood and death, and seeing that as some of the core reasons for a lot of the you know, deeper systemic issues in our culture and the ways that colonization had systematically cut off people from ritual and cut off cultures that actively tended those thresholds from being able to tend them. And so for me, that's part of one part of why shamanism that I saw this answer to, oh, I could, we could learn to do this again. We could learn to initiate ourselves. We could learn right. to become the people that can support the younger people in becoming initiated. But then also there was just these spirits coming into my life and they were animal helping spirits. And shamanism was a place that I found that knew how to translate those, could give me the tools to translate the messages I was receiving from those animal helping spirits. And I feel like people listening, I mean, including myself, when I received the book, I was like, shamans, aren't they, don't they live in a jungle somewhere? You know, I have like these really limited views <laughs> of like, <laughs> of what a shaman is. So what is a shaman? Yeah, that's a really fraught question and a good question. Um, so I think how I define shaman probably changes on a daily basis. But what I, when I'm using the word shaman, first I should say I'm using sort of small s shaman versus, or shaman, small s shamanism, versus big as shamanism. So when I say big as shamanism, I'm more talking about like Mongolian shamanism, like uh, where the word initially comes from, the peoples that first use that word to describe this specific type of practitioner in their culture, specific role in their culture. And it's not the same, that role as, as just a healer or just a diviner. Like in, in these cultures, lots of different specialties of engaging with the spirit world that many different people can have. And when I say just, I'm not saying that those roles are less than, I'm just meaning that this role is different. It has its own set of responsibilities. And how I would think about that responsibility is tending balance between the individual and their soul, the individual and the family, the family and the community, and the community and the unseen world and the spirit world and the environment. Like, you know, right. all those things being the same thing, kind of like nature, spirit world. And so the shaman tends all those balances through moving into trans states, moving into what you might call, you know, the unseen realms or the more than human world, the, the great dreaming, this sort of reality that's beneath the surface of things and intertwined with, with what we see as our world. They move into that space and through work with the spirits, they tend that balance. Right. And I guess they reflect back to the, the individual, the family and the community, what they could be doing better in, to be in balance with those other realms or spirits exactly. or indeed the world. Exactly. And in those cultures, it's also understood that it's not the shaman's job to tend your personal relationship with the spirit world or with the spirit in general, that each individual in that community has their own practices for tending that relationship as well. The shaman is like the specialist who comes in when things have really gone sideways. Right. Yeah. And so shaman with a small s. Yeah. And so shamanism with a small s is, I think of as the way that 
this anthropologist and religious scholar, Merci Eliadi, um, began to use the word shamanism to refer cross-culturally to all peoples who had a role that mirrored that role that you find in that culture. And so um, for better, or for worse, that began to be a term that we used to re refer to anyone who embodies that role. And I think that's very valuable actually, because in cultures where we've lost our original words, I think it's important to be able to tend that role through having a word for it. Like if something can't be named, then it's hard to know it exists. And so it's not an ideal solution because there is an element of appropriation in a sense and using this word um, that means a very specific thing for a very specific culture to apply more broadly to many cultures. But I also do find the more I engage with different indigenous teachers and different traditions that there's a real truth that this role is found in many cultures and that and it's the experience of people who share that role in those cultures is very similar to each other. There's differences, of course, because mm. the land you're on so heavily informs the shamanism you do. Just like it shapes all human beings, you know, when, when you're on. Yes, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one of the things I was enchanted by in the book, I mean, among many, was the dreaming, which you've just mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, and there's a couple of points I want to draw you out on here because let me try this. Yeah, this is where I want to go. So the first is <clears throat> I, I see some I see some parallel between the role of the shaman within a culture society um, and this connection to the individual's responsibility to tend to their own spiritual well-being. And this question I had reading the book, like, this is great that we as individuals can cultivate and tend and nurture and grow and move through grief, grief and break our hearts open. But we're still within a society designed to crush us, or as Audre Lorde says, grind us to dust. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I want to draw you out on that a bit about, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to heal ourselves within a, within a really fucked up world. <laughs> and a lot of these problems seem beyond the realm of our own individual spiritual development. Mm -hmm. Absolutely they are. And I think it's important to recognize that all systems are made up of individuals. So I would never say that we can, that it's all on us, you know, especially as those of us who are like the most marginalized to, to create change just simply through doing our own personal work. I think systems are only able to be changed by people working in coordination with each other to create that change. But what I see is when we're not taking responsibility to move into that kind of heartbreak and cultivate the capacity of heart that happens when we move into heartbreak and move through it into healing of that heartbreak and our sort of heart capacity expands. We lose that ability to both hold the current reality we're in, like the truth of the mess we're in and actually feel that in our heart and also feel the truth of the vision that we wanna to move towards and the love that's all around us and the abundant resources available to us. And we need to hold both to create meaningful change in a broken culture. Because what I see often is when we're trying to create change, we end up collapsing into the mess, like just get total burnout, you know, in like an organizing capacity or um, this weird sort of like new age fascism of like, I'm only gonna focus on the positive. Everything's, you know, wonderful. And we're all gonna be beamed up by the aliens eventually, you know, it's all fine. Just be positive, don't talk about racism, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Busy being black will return in just a moment. We specialize in die-cast metal miniature gun models that you didn't know you've been looking for. Called GOAT Guns. Ah! Yes, GOAT! They are the greatest of all time gun models you can display on your desk. Buy, build, and collect them. We offer a 90-day return policy if you don't love yours. Start your collection at GOATGUNS.COM I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. Today, a conversation with Langston Kahn, He's a shamanic healer whose new book, Deep Liberation, offers us practical tools for personal and communal transformation. You're right about, of course you're right, about <laughs> there being shamanesque 
um, roles within different cultures. I had a conversation with someone on the show a couple of years ago now about Yoruba culture and about how uh, there's this belief that each of us chooses the head that we're going to be in yeah, and when we're deciding where to go um, and that we choose also our parents and the people who are going to escort us through this life or teach us how to who are going to provide the best lesson we need to learn in this life and so it's 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 nice to kind of build on that with this which is this kind of figuring out of what our unique gift to give to the world is I'm th I can't help but think of Oprah now because she does, you know, with Deepak Chopra and all these things, uh, find your unique purpose, which sometimes feels a bit woo-woo, right? Like, uh, does everyone feel like they have a purpose? If everyone did this exercise, what would change? Would, would we, can, is that too big of a question? No, I love that question. Um, yes, I would say everyone has a purpose. You know, in these indigenous cosmologies, no one is understood as disposable. Like, no one's, oh, well, they just do that thing. So they don't really matter, you know, as much as we matter. You know, everyone is understood to have medicine that if it is not expressed, appreciates the entire fabric of the universe. So, but that is almost going more into the realm of woo-woo. So let's, let's ground that no, down. No, I, <laughs> yeah. no, I like that because it made me think that actually, of course, we would think, we would kind of, those of us in, in Western culture, let's say, would hear talk about purpose and rightfully be skeptical because we actually we have been, we, we, we've come up in, we've been baked in a society that does actually treat people rather disposably, especially us, right? Absolutely. Uh, if we're not here for the specific um, hard labor, sexual labor, whatever kind of utility we serve for white supremacy, um, outside of that, you know, then it can, yeah, then it can absolutely see that this is be a bit cynical about one's purpose. And purpose doesn't have to be tied to money. Like, you know, what you're doing in your work for money. Um, it's nice when it, it can be nice when it is, but you know, there's this way that our purpose is something that we are taking responsibility to show up for and tend versus demanding that it take care of us in a sense there is a certain level of protection that comes from being in alignment with what you are here to do. And, you know, in an ideal world, the more we were in alignment with our purpose, the more we would have the resources that we need to live that purpose in style, you know, to really bring that purpose into the world. With that said, it's also important to realize, you know, I had this big moment when I had done this like year long process of really doing deep healing work with my ancestors. And it was like the, the fourth year in a larger healing process I was in, um, in this training I was doing. And I was doing this ecstatic dance and I just felt my ancestors suddenly all around me. And they shared with me this, this name that was my purpose or an aspect of my purpose. And instantly I started thinking, okay, how do I do that thing? How do I go out in the world and do that thing? This is my purpose, you know, I gotta do it. And they're like, stop, 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 grandchild. Like, what are you doing? Like, no, please have patience. And what we're trying to tell you is who you are, not what you have to do, who you are. And so that is our purpose. It's not about like to be a teacher or to bring healing to the world through doing this. It's like about, this is who you can't help but being. When you are in alignment, with your authentic self and being who you truly are in the world, this is you. And so what our purpose allows us then to do is look at how do I do everything in my life as an expression of that energy, parenting, you know, going to the grocery store, you know, whatever we're doing in our day, how do I do it as an expression of that unique energy that I am and that I am here to be on this earth? I was just thinking, I feel like I don't actually know what mine is. I mean, I have, an I have some indication of what I'm drawn to. I pay attention to what lights me up and I try to go in those directions. It's very much a bodily, I've, I have very visceral reactions to things. So if someone says something, I get goosebumps or I feel a spark or, and so I, I've learned to listen to those things, but I don't know if I could distill it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we always can because it is this, this energy that's never been seen before and will never be seen again. I think you know, sometimes we find these snatches of words that really do distill it and are helpful in that way as like a compass or a guide. But it would be a mistake even to think that that is the sum total of that energy. Because the only way we can answer the question of what is my purpose is with a life lived, you know, being willing to live fully and then die. You know, that's when we know 
we've expressed our purpose because we're dead. There's no longer more purpose to <laughs> express in a sense, you know? Yeah. Um, and if we're still living, there's still more to discover. There's still more in the unconscious and the unknown that's wanting to come into manifestation that might come, you know, in your dreams tomorrow, you know, who knows? But so I think what you're talking about, that feeling of being in touch with your desire and listening to when that spark lights up and paying attention to what am I choosing to be devoted to throughout my day and my life, that is what I'm talking about around purpose. It's not always easily articulated, but once we've felt moments of alignment, it's easier and easier to orient back to that feeling and look for that in all that we do and turn away from the things that don't have that sense of alignment. Yeah. <laughs> that turning away feels important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It takes a thousand no's to say one true yes. One of my teachers is fond of saying. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, something else that comes up in the book is uh, sensation um, and the and feeling as a form of knowledge. And this keeps I, I don't know if the if the ancestors or the universe is trying to tell me something, but you're kind of the third encounter with this idea of sensation as information or as sensation as knowledge. I'm reading it in a book right now by Lamar, Lamar Jarrell Bruce, had a conversation on the podcast um, with um, Abdul Ali Muhammad, who was talking about how their body leads them. They listen to what their body is telling them to do in defense of what's right. And then in your book too, that, that there's very much a guiding or embodied wisdom um, that we feel. Can you speak more mm -hmm. on that about, about feeling and sensation and knowledge? Absolutely. I think the body is so much bigger than just the individual where, you know, our bodies are connected to each other, to our environment, to our ancestors, you know, so they carry so much wisdom in them. And when I'm talking about listening to the body, I'm not just talking about instinct, that sort of primal yes or no in the gut. That's really important, but that's not all that's important. What I'm talking about is connecting with what you might call the felt sense, which is this knowing that's beyond words that we carry in our body. And so if I'm willing to sort of, if I'm in a situation and I wanna take that situation into my body to feel what action I'm gonna take next, I'm inviting my body to bring into my awareness what it wants to tell me about that situation. And how my body is going to communicate to me is through the symbol. And when I say symbol, that sounds abstract, but what I mean is a physical sensation, like a clenching in my gut, an emotion, a sudden sadness or anger, a um, image, a memory, um, a word, or just an intuitive knowing. All these are symbols that our body communicates to us with. And then we can take those symbols and resonate them with that felt sense in our body. So like, oh, I feel a clenching in my gut, but I'm taking that word clenching back to the feeling of my body and seeing, is that the best word or is there an even better word? It's, it's not quite a clenching. It's like a, it feels like a, 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 almost a bracing is more accurate. It's like this bracing, like these two hands kind of like with their up in front of my face, like trying to. Um, push away something that's coming that they're worried about. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so I'm just navigating into my belly where I feel this some, someone in me, this self that's just kind of bracing and I'm, I'm just taking a seat next to that self and I'm having a conversation with them. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about like listening to the felt sense in the body. It's this willingness to, with compassion and curiosity, engage the messages our body is sending us and interpret that symbolic language our body is sharing through testing it, almost like a game of hot and cold against the felt sense. Noticing, is the felt sense like opening as I describe what I'm noticing, or is it sort of closing and darting away? And if it's closing and darting away, that's usually a sign that I'm becoming sort of like unconsciously identified with another partial self that has like an opinion about that thing, like maybe that's scared of that bracing self, doesn't want to look at it. And so I have to take a moment to say hello to that self too, and come into a relationship <laughs> with both of them. I'm thinking, do felt sense and trauma run into each other? Do they overlap? Does felt sense give us a journey towards a trauma? Does trauma give us a felt sense? You know what I mean? What's the connection yeah. between felt sense and trauma? Well, I've found that engaging the felt sense is one of the 
quickest and most effective ways to begin deep healing work with trauma. Because when we're able to cult cultivate a relationship with a felt sense and relationship to a trauma that we carry in our body, we're able to track that trauma to its root where it first started within us and then show up for the self that's sort of stuck in the story that creates that trauma. Because two people can have the same experience and one leaves, you know, moves on their life, the other one leaves very traumatized. And so it's not about the events that happen that cause trauma, but about the stories we construct around those events. And I don't mean that in any way to, you know, devalue trauma because those stories are very real and they have huge impacts on our life and they're not easy to change. But if we can engage the felt sense, we can track back to the self that holds that story and then show up for them in a way that supports them in feeling safe enough to release that old story of that trauma. Yeah, because I guess this, the story the story doesn't necessarily solve the trauma, heal the trauma, right? The story is just a way of talking about the trauma. It doesn't actually serve a purpose and necessarily serve a purpose in the healing of that trauma. Well, what, and what I mean when I say story isn't just the story we tell about what happened. That's part of it. But even more so the story we learned that we carried into the rest of our life. Like, let's say this is like a very small example um, that like I'm running home. I'm really excited to, I'm just like, maybe I'm like 10 years old at the time when like our purpose energy is really rising up. And I'm just like, felt myself today. I was like singing this song and I just felt my whole like beautiful purpose energy rise up. And I just run in and I share it. I start singing to my mom. And then she just says, will you please shut up? You know, like she just had a really hard day. She is, I'm just sound like loud noise that's coming in suddenly and like uh, disturbing her. And I just crumple. And I feel like, ooh, if when I'm really my purpose energy, I am not acceptable. Like it is not, if I use my voice in service of my vision, I'll be crushed. And then that part of me learns to hold that story. And every time I encounter similar situations in my life, I'm sort of rocketed back into that experience. And I learn to silence myself in the same way that my mother did. And so that is what I mean when I talk about these stories. Wow. Yeah. So then we need to go back to, sorry. Yeah. No, please finish. Yeah, I would just say so then we would need to go back to that self who holds that story and see what were they really needing in that moment that they didn't end up getting from their parent. Because at the point that we're adults, there's no other adult in our life that can show up for us and show up for that younger self, except us. We have to be the adults for those younger selves now. So we can show up and see what were they really needing in that moment. How can I recognize that song of their purpose that was coming out of them? How can I help them know it's safe to use their voice in that way. I get it. So there is information in these stories, right? That we, that we carry. And our job yeah. is to figure out what that, what that story, what that moment was supposed to teach us or what we felt like we lost in that moment and give it back. Yeah. And the beautiful thing is we don't have to do that with our mind. We don't have to like analyze and figure out that if we're willing to track the felt sense in our body, it will lead us to these stories in these places. And the other thing about the felt sense and related to trauma that was part of your like original question is the wound wouldn't know that it was a wound unless it also knew what healing and forward movement feels like. Yeah. And so that's what I, when I say that, that's what I mean. Like that, like, like that child that carries that story also knows what that initial impulse was and what he was wanting to do that he didn't quite get to do, but he knows what that feels like to just be in his purpose, using his voice and his power. So if we can show up and help get out of the way for that child stuff, all those other forces that came in, then they know what to do. Like they know what it feels like to be whole in that way. And then they can bring back that knowing to the fullness of ourself. That's beautiful. I'd like to talk about, we don't have much time left, but I'd like to, I'd love to talk about the dreaming. Um, tell us about the dreaming. It's a beautiful story. Yeah, well, you know, this seems like a sidetrack, but I want to go back for a second just to what you asked about um, systemic oppression, you know, and doing this work within that. I think that the, the part of the answer that I didn't quite say, too, is that I believe that to be able to actually um, create change in those systems, we have to be able to work together 
And to work together, we need to be have these tools to engage the felt sense in our body, to be able to withdraw our projections and navigate our triggers and to not just instantly project upon each other and be vulnerable to manipulation and division and the very real tactics that, you know, governments and other forces use to break up people that are in community trying to create change together. And so when I think about the dreaming, it's... Oh, sorry, let me just clarify that as well, because I think yeah. that's, a very, that's a very important point, because what, what you're offering here is an opportunity for us to do the, this important work of healing and being full in ourselves. So not so that we can tear down the system on our own, but so that we can work in community, so that we can show up fully in community with other people and, and create the ch- type of change that our, all of our purposes probably are drawing us towards, right? At the minute. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, so many of us, some of the biggest wounds we've experienced have been in community, you know, in churches, in schools, or in families, you know, and so we're very wary of coming together around anything, even when we genuinely want to create change. And so I think we need these tools to be able to reclaim our, our communal self, like our ability as contemporary people to understand what it is to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves without losing our uniqueness. Mm. And in an indigenous context, those things aren't mutually exclusive. Like there's an understanding that the community supports the individual in recognizing their unique purpose. And the individual is able to live that purpose in service to the vision of that community. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so the dreaming. Yeah. Which, of course, this all relates to, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, um, So with the dreaming, um, one way to think about the the dreaming or the great dreaming is this energy uh, that that is beneath the surface of things that helps us to understand not just, not, it's not like just there's like the spirit world and our world. Like the great dreaming is much more complex than that. It's this idea, it's a set of understanding of stories in a sense, like the sort of right use of stories of how the world was created and an understanding that that creation is happening all the time around us. That there's not like a time when the world was created and then something that continued from there. There's this non-linear understanding of time that we always are able to be working at the essence of things. So in a sense, the great dreaming is this, you know, one way to look at the great dreaming is this dream of all of life, this dream that life is moving towards this ever-changing living process. And when we turn away from our own authenticity, you know, our own purpose, our own destiny, we become stuck or fixed often in one idea of who we are and who we could be and what we're here to do. And we step out of this living process, this great dream of all of life. And so I think right now, you know, humanity in that great dream of all of life is meant to be, like if you think of it as like an, a, a body, like we're meant to be this, this beautiful organ in that body, you know, doing our thing that, our, that we do as the human organ that supports all the rest of life. Um, but instead what's happened you know, when we turn away from relationship with that great dream of all of life, what happens is we, um, we end up not just harming the rest of life, but also, of course, harming ourselves. We're denying the vastness of who we are in relationship to that, that larger dream. Yeah. I love this idea of, of like vastness. Right, because we we're, we live in this world that constantly tells us that we can be one thing. You know, there's so many limitations on the expression of ourselves and our purpose, or on how we can dress, or what gender we identify as, or I mean, the whole construct of gender on its own is enough. Uh, and so, I love this idea that that we can encounter and tend to this vastness. Right, that we're not this singular entity on our own, or as you've written here. Um, it's uh, that the, the, the dreaming helps define the idea of living, quote, in right relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in that, you know, I, there's this understanding that 
we are all in relationship all the time. We can't not be in relationship. But the question is, how are we tending those relationships? Like, are we allowing those relationships to be ones of exploitation and, and pain? And, you know, some people get resources, some people don't. Or are we actually tending those relationships in a way that everyone is understood as indisposable, you know, essential, and everyone is getting their needs met? You know, obviously, the big big ask in this current system that is built upon inequality and, and only a certain amount of people getting their needs met. But that is what is meant really by that right relationship that, and that sense that it's not even just about the human world, but all of life. And that can sound really abstract, but when you think, when you look at like, you know, indigenous cultures that were, for example, you know, planting certain plants so that the fish in that area could um, thrive more or, you know, doing coordinated forest burns to help the forest be able to thrive more and be healthier and avoid forest fires. You know, like there's understanding that humans are not just meant to like conserve and not take too much and recycle, but actually be helping life to thrive because of course we are life too. So if life is thriving, we're thriving. And that in this, you know, current culture of separation and trauma, we become so divorced for that concept. It seems like idealistic, you know, it seems like impossible, but I think, one of the ways we can ground that concept in our life is just really looking at the sphere of our immediate life, you know, currently, like our friends, our family, our environment, like, you know, just in our, in our very immediate environment and looking at how am I in any given moment contributing to those environments or taking from those environments, knowing there's no neutral. I'm either doing one or the other. So how can I begin to shift that balance in a way that feels in alignment with who I am in this moment? I was going to ask you what people could do as a first step besides reading Deep Liberation, and you just told us. Um, do you have your book in front of you? Um, I do. I thought we could, um, I normally, to close, I normally ask my guests what you hope for, but you um, closed the book with a poem that you wrote, and so I'd, I'd like to invite you to read that to close this out. I, I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. So, so this poem is, it came to me, I was in the Sonoran Desert and my community was doing this retreat where we were working to create elders in our communities. People have been in the teachings for like 20 years and we're ready to be elders and they needed help getting there. We didn't know how to make elders. And what we decided to do was assign younger people in the community. And I was one of them to help sort of pull that eldership out of these older members of the community. And, um, I still I had no idea what I was doing, like helping to lead these people and becoming elders. And so I asked for help. I went to this, this ancient spring that was in the Sonoran Desert. Um, and it was this big sort of, you know, deep underground uh, water. And this is the message that it gave to me in relation to that question of how do we create elders? Like, what does that mean even? Drip, 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 drip. Everything starts right here with one drop of water, a waterfall, a roaring river, a rainstorm. It all starts with one falling drop and another and another. Water doesn't stop to ask, will I be loved if I fall off this precipice? Will I be isolated and alone if I emerge from this cool, dark crevice? Will I dry up and die and cease to exist if I leave the soft expanse of the sky and fall to earth? Water doesn't stop to worry and wonder. Water simply flows, opens, expresses, moves, down, 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 drip, 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 finding the lowest point, the deepest expression possible, slowly, consistently, drip by drip, giving life to the world. Take the first step, then the next. Trust, open, flow, grow larger. The ocean is waiting. The world needs you. Langston Khan is a queer Black teacher and shamanic practitioner who specializes in radical human transformation. His book, Deep Liberation, bridges the shamanic wisdom of ancient spirituality with the needs and demands of modern day life and is published by North Atlantic Books.
Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City, for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.